If you would turn to Matthew chapter 21, as we continue in our series in Matthew, we are making our way towards the end of this insightful and life-transforming gospel. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. He has made his way into Jerusalem. And as you will see in these coming chapters, things speed up. And a lot happens as Jesus is making his way, not to Jerusalem now, but making his way to the cross. So look at chapter 21 and follow along as I begin in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Father, we come to you in faith this morning. Faith in the truth and transforming power of your word to give life to us today, to give hope to us today, to give strength to us today, to remind us today of how deeply you love each one of us. Lord, thank you for speaking to us through the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit that we might become more like your Son, Jesus Christ, to your glory and in your Son's precious name. Amen. There was a Sunday school teacher who decided to ask her preschool class what they remembered about Easter. 
The first little boy suggested that Easter was when all the family came to the house and ate a big turkey and watched football. She then asked a little girl who seemed to think that Easter was the day when you came down the stairs in the morning and saw all the beautiful presents under the tree. At this point, the teacher was feeling very discouraged, but after explaining to the little girl that that was about Christmas, another little boy raised his hand. She immediately called on him and was encouraged when he began to say that Easter was the time when Jesus was crucified on the cross and buried. The teacher finally felt like she had gotten through until the little boy added, and then he came out of the grave, and if he sees his shadow, we have six more weeks of winter. (laughs) You know, like these children, many in Matthew's gospel struggle to understand who Jesus was and why he had came. The crowds, the scribes, the Pharisees, and even his own disciples at times misunderstood his identity. But from the very beginning of his gospel, and evident in every chapter of his gospel, Matthew identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He, he wanted his readers to understand that Jesus, who had come, who now entered Jerusalem, was the final and perfect king. The final king. Before, at the end of all the kings who some were good, some were wicked, but none were perfect. This perfect king had come. This Messiah had come to deliver. Each story and each parable, every healing and every teaching and every deliverance recorded by Matthew points to Jesus as God who has come in the flesh. And as we come to the end of this gospel, Matthew has directed our attention to now, now not just God, but let us look at him as king, as the perfect king who has come to rule and as the long-awaited Messiah who has come to deliver. And last week in John's message, as Chris has just mentioned, John taught about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and showed us Matthew's intent in identifying Jesus as king. And as Jesus enters the city, these crowds proclaim who he is. He is the son of David. And they shout, Hosanna! Which literally means, save us now. They shout, Hosanna, son of David, seeing to some extent that this king is the one who will reign on the throne forever. And John, in his message, left us, as I listened to it, with an eternally important question. Who's your king? And whose kingdom do you belong to? And Matthew goes on to help us understand And help us answer the question, who is our king? And which kingdom do we belong to? Along with tens of thousands of worshipers, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And it is the final week of his life. It's known as the Passion Week. And he enters the city to these cries of Hosanna, to the cries of the son of David. And and there is this inkling that something, someone special had come. 
but they're not quite sure if Jesus is the Messiah they're hoping for. They were hoping for, as we've mentioned again and again, a conquering military king who is going to free them from Roman oppression. But as, as we will see in the coming weeks, as we go through the Passion Week, as we read about Jesus' life, he becomes not the military hero they had hoped for, but a huge disappointment. The culmination of this week, as we will see, ends in humiliation, not in triumph. Now today, we have two pericopes, two stories to read. The pericope about Jesus in the temple and Jesus with the fig tree. And they show us what kind of king Jesus is through two profound public displays of his authority and power. So two points that we see in these passages. One is a withered temple, and secondly, a withered tree. Now, a withered temple, in verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This This is the experience of the temple. The entire temple, understand the the size of the the temple. The entire temple was massive in size. It began with what was the outermost court called the court of the Gentiles. The size of the court of the Gentiles was between 25 and 30 acres. Literally 25 to 30 football fields. That's how big the court of the Gentile was was. Then you had inner the court of women where women were allowed to go. Then the court of of Israel where Jews were allowed to go. Then you had another inner court where the priests were allowed to go. And then finally the most holy place, the inner court where the, the high priest would go once a year to make atonement through the sacrifice of blood with a lamb. Now the court of Gentiles was the only area in the temple where non-Jews were allowed. And that's why it's called the court of Gentiles, as its name implies. It was accessible to Gentiles, foreigners, and non-Jews who were converts to Judaism. But just because they were they were believers in Judaism now. They were still non-Jews. And so the court of Gentiles was for them. And these non-Jews were allowed to enter the court of the Gentiles, but they were forbidden from going any deeper into the temple because if they had gone any deeper, there was a death sentence put on them. Now being Passover week, this court of Gentiles is filled with tens of thousands of Jews and Gentiles who had made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came to the temple to pray and to offer sacrifices, to perform rites of cleansing and present offerings to the Lord. 
Many, many of these had made long journeys, and because of these long journeys, it was impractical for them to be carrying the lamb or the animals they needed to, to provide the sacrifice. And so it, was, it wasn't the, a bad thing that there were actually those who sold lambs or pigeons or doves, and the pigeons or doves were those who did not have enough money. They were poor, so they couldn't afford to buy a lamb, and so pigeons and doves were allowed. It it was appropriate for them to be there. It was a service. And the money changers were necessary because where people came from all around, not just Jerusalem, but all through Israel and, and other countries, as they came to celebrate the Passover, they would bring their local currency and to pay the half, half shekel temple tax as well as to purchase the, the animals that they needed. They needed the, the temple currency. And so the money changers were not bad as well in that regard. The problem was, and the reason for Jesus' righteous anger was not that there were money changers and merchants, but where these people had set up their booths. They had set up these booths inside the temple in the court of the Gentiles. They desecrated the temple by being in the temple. Imagine the scene. 25 acres packed with people from all around the world who'd come to celebrate the Passover, packed, and the noise of animals and the noise of children and the noise of merchants calling out and the crowds and the, the, the just everyone together in the same place milling about. But no one in the court of the Gentiles was worshiping God. It should have been a place of prayer and meditation and praise and devotion. Instead, the religious leaders allowed these merchants to turn the court of Gentiles into a place of abomination. Imagine coming in here on a Sunday morning and in that corner you've got Krispy Kreme selling donuts and coffee and saying, over here. And in that corner you've got Dunkin' Donuts selling coffee and saying, donuts over here. And then you've got Starbucks in the middle saying, oh, no, no, we're over here. And then out front, there's a guy saying, oh, no, each of those places only takes a certain currency, so you've got to buy here. And the problem is that there's all this activity and all this noise, but no one is worshiping God. And that's what was going on here. Beyond that, both the money changers and the merchants dramatically raise their prices to make a buck. And all of this occurs because the religious leaders in the temple allow it to be so. Speculation on my part, but it wouldn't surprise me if those religious leaders got a kickback from everything that was sold and the money that was exchanged. So Jesus' righteous anger was not that there were money changers and merchants, but that these people had set up their booths inside the temple court. 
Now in John 2, if you read John 2, Jesus actually had cleansed the temple three years earlier. This was the second temple cleansing. And now he enters God's house once again, and it's worse than ever. You would have thought maybe three years earlier the religious leaders would have gotten the message, but they did not. And now it's, it's worse. I, I, I can't imagine if somebody saw Jesus coming in three years later and recognized who he was and what he had done three years earlier, where they'd be kind of hiding away now from this. And in an act that is visibly and powerfully demonstrating his kingship and his authority and power, he removes this desecration. He overturns the tables, he overturns the seats, and he chases these people out. In fact, if you read in Mark's account of this, Jesus actually stops all these people from walking anywhere near the temple. It is a striking statement that is declaring so much more than just cleaning things up. It is a statement of God's judgment against the religious. Those who, who look so religious on the outside but are dead inside. It was a striking statement. And it was a statement that, that Jesus was making saying, this temple that you revered for so long, that you have turned into a den of robbers, this temple is no longer the dwelling place of God. That's what this moment is about. In a sense, the temple had withered. Jesus had cursed the temple at that moment. In fact, it was, it was really in fulfillment of what he has said earlier in Matthew 12, where he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And who is that? It's Christ. Jesus, he sees the hypocrisy, the desecration by the religious leaders, and he condemns it all. With, with power and, and with emotion, he preaches to the crowds and to the religious leaders. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, understand what those religious leaders heard, those crowds heard at that moment. Jesus said, my house. He identified the temple as his only God could do that. Only God could say, my house. And that, oh, that, that in fact, in, in Mark, Mark says when they heard that, they began to seek a way to destroy Jesus. He's identified himself as the king, as God. My house is to be a house of prayer. And this temple and all that's happening here is everything but. And so he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, another fulfillment of Old Testament scripture and prophecy. And that stuns the priest. This, this is my house and you've desecrated. He, he's declaring his deity in these words. And it's an affront to the religious rulers. It's, it's, it's indignant is what it makes them 
And then he goes on. He just doesn't make this declaration and he doesn't make this statement that I am God and this is my house and this house is done. But then he goes on and in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Now those words in the temple are are important words because he heals them there. If, if you study Jewish, Jewish religious law, you realize that the lame and the blind were not allowed in the temple. They were considered impure. That their infirmity, their sickness, their disease, whatever disability they had was the result of them being impure sinners. And you do not allow impure sinners in the house of God. And yet Jesus in the temple not only shows his authority by allowing them in the temple and showing his power by healing them in the temple, but he displays to these people, to the crowds, a compassion and a love for those who are suffering and hurting that the religious leaders never expressed. These religious leaders are indignant. And Jesus has done these acts in the temple, I think, to prod them. Now, indignant does not do justice to how they really felt. The, the Greek would be they were furious and filled with wrath. He not only upends their business, heals in the temple and declares this place is now obsolete, but he allows the children to worship him. Hosanna to the son of David. Save us now, king. And the religious leaders respond and they say, Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying about you? Do you hear what they're calling you? What are you going to do about it? And Jesus said, yes, I hear exactly what they're saying. And by the way, have you never read? Now, now understand this. He is speaking to scribes and chief priests, people who would have almost, if not memorized the entire Old Testament, would know pretty much every word of the Old Testament. And he asked them this question, have you ever read? <laughs> like they had never opened their, their Bible. He says, have, have you never read out of mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? It comes from Psalm 2. Now, what is so important is that Psalm 2, it, this is Psalm, two, Psalm 8, verse 2, but verse 1 would be what these scribes and religious leaders would remember because Psalm 1, Psalm 8, 1 says something far even more profound. It begins, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. And so here, Jesus is quoting Psalm 8 too, but these guys that are listening would know that verse 1 is all about extolling God. And that's what Jesus is saying about himself. Now, back in Genesis, Eden was a temple. It was a sanctuary. What made Eden a temple and a sanctuary 
was the presence of God, the place where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And because of their sin, though, they were banished from this temple garden, from God's presence. But God, in his mercy, provided a way back through the shedding of blood each day, the sacrifice of lambs and bulls for the sins of the people. But it was temporary. It was temporary until the Lamb of God would come, until one greater than the temple would come. And now Jesus is declaring, this place is no longer a sanctuary. It is no longer the garden of God. It is a shell of its former glory. It is a withered temple because something greater than the temple has come. Jesus, in his authority, cleanses the temple, displays his power by healing in the temple, and allows the children to worship him, a worship reserved only for God and God alone. This was his house, and now that house is no more the center of worship because Christ is the center of worship. This is what this simple pericope, this story, is about. A withered temple and a now worshipped temple in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, in John 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So in another few days, we will be reading Jesus would be mocked and beaten and crucified and put to death on the cross for our sins. And he would die our death and shed his blood on our behalf, but rise again three days later. A physical structure was no longer necessary because the true and living God is himself the temple. So that's the first thing we see here is a, is a withered temple. Now, Jesus, now Mark, Mark in his account separates the withering of the temple and the withering of the fig tree into two separate days. Matthew, as he does often in his gospel, condenses a lot of things and keeps things topically. And so if, if you read Mark, you'll see it happening over two days, but that's not a problem. You, you're talking about you know, three different men, the synoptic gospels, three different men, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, having a, different perspectives, but recording the same event. So verse 18, in the morning as he's returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, the word synoptic, so you just understand with these three gospel writers, literally means able to be seen together. And so it's just the three, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and these accounts, you can read them all together and it gives you a much fuller account. I would encourage you to do that. What is important is what the message being conveyed is here. The withered temple displayed the emptiness of the religious leaders' faith, their outward show of temple worship and religious rules and ritual cleansing and man-made faith traditions. It was all a dead religion. 
and it was deserving of judgment. And the gathering of God's people was always meant, as we gather here, it was meant to be a time of devotion and prayer and praise, and the temple had become anything but. This second event calls out for our attention as Jesus curses this fruitless fig tree. Now, understand, this is an event with with no, really no parallel in, in Jesus' ministry. There was only one other time where we see Jesus' judgment exercised and death occurs. And that's with the, the demoniacs and the pigs who, who die going over the cliff. Here we see death in a withered tree because of God's judgment. Now, that tree was full of leaves, but it was barren of fruit. And what what Matthew is recording for us and what Jesus is communicating to us is that this is a striking picture of the Jewish people. Well, overall, if you want to go down throughout the history, it's a striking picture of all who proclaim to be religious but are not alive on the inside. J.C. Riles calls the the nation of Israel at this time, the Jewish church, and that it had everything to make it appear godly. It had the temple, the priesthood, daily service, sacrifice, yearly feast, Old Testament scriptures, and the promises of God. But beneath all those good leaves of religious practice, the Jewish church was utterly bankrupt of fruit. It had no true worship, no love, no mercy, no compassion, no humility, no spirituality, no true holiness, no willingness to receive Christ as the Messiah. And Jesus is prophesying here, like this fig tree, the Jewish church would soon wither and die. It would be stripped of everything that would make the Jewish nation the unique people of God. Mark, in his account, tells us that it was not the season for bearing fruit. Well, that that begs a question. Why then would Jesus curse a tree that was not bearing fruit because it was not the season for it? Well, it's because the leaves advertised that it was bearing fruit. The only time you saw leaves on a fig tree was when it was bearing fruit. The advertisement was false. Human and hungry, Jesus saw an opportunity to eat. And when he couldn't, he used this as a teachable, memorable object lesson by cursing that tree, not because it didn't bear fruit, but because it made appearance of bearing fruit and had none. Listen, this was not a hangry moment for Jesus. Earlier this past week, because we had been sick, and so Marilyn and I were doing a lot of, you know, please deliver food kind of a thing. And uh, I, so I decided I wanted a Jimmy John's sub. So I ordered a Jimmy John's sub, waited an hour. It hadn't shown up. I finally called them. They said, oh, yeah, so sorry. Uh, we're out of bread. A sub shop is out of bread. Now, when I got online to order the advertisement, telling me what I could get, showing me pictures of bread filled with meat. So I cursed Jimmy John's. (laughs) 
May a sub never come from you again. It didn't work. (laughs) Now what Jesus is doing here is cursing those who make a show of bearing spiritual fruit but are spiritually barren inside. He's, He's directing his attack against hypocrisy. That's what he's directing his attack. It's much the same with cleansing the temple, which he criticizes those who use the temple to make a large profit, who made everything look so religious on the outside, but were hypocrites. And so Jesus rightly judges them. So the question is, why is this, why are these passages, why is this passage relevant for us today? Listen, because we are capable of being a tree of leaves without fruit. We're we're capable. It's possible to look religious on the outside. It's possible to look godly on the outside. Now, not that we, we all struggle with sin. And that is why God, in his mercy, gave us 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is, we know it is transforming grace that he who began a good work in us will complete it. And so, yes, there is this, this battle that we live with where we are, we are transformed, we are born again, we have God's heart in us, and yet we struggle with sin at times. But that, that is not what Jesus is after here. He's after those who have a clear show of godliness on the outside, but whose lives are anything but when you look on the inside. An outward profession of faith without a genuine inward holiness is a bankruptcy worthy of judgment. And that is what Jesus is saying here. Now, what is interesting is after, he, after the fig tree dies, there seems to be this sudden shift in Jesus' conversation with the disciples in answering their question, how did you make the, the fig tree die? Because I couldn't make Jimmy John's die. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? 21, and Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, be careful, this, this is... There's hyperbole here. Jesus is not literally talking about being able to cast mountains into the sea. If anyone wants to go to Sugarloaf, and I will watch you, try casting Sugarloaf Mountain into the sea. That is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage, Jesus is saying, is that, listen, here is a withered temple. Here is a withered tree. These are people who have a show on the outside. But let me tell you what real faith is. Here's real faith. It's faith in God. It's faith in who God is. 
It's faith in what God does. Yes, it seems to be a strange shift, but what he is saying is true faith is grounded in prayer. Now, what did Jesus say about the temple? My house shall be a house of prayer. And here he's talking once again about prayer. That Jesus' point is that true religion, true faith is grounded in believing prayer. Jesus, when cleansing the temple, said that. Now he's saying it again. He's saying, listen, to be his witnesses to his marvelous glory and his saving grace and compassionate mercy and transforming power, that, that is what our lives are about. And that is who we are to be. And the only way we can do that is through believing prayer to put our our hope and trust in the goodness of God and that God is the one whose will is for us to do these things and he will empower us to do these things if we believe him and if we go to him in prayer. Now, what is interesting is in the Greek, this whole section on on faith and prayer is, is actually the verbs are all plural. It's not talking about individual prayer primarily. It's talking about corporate prayer. It's talking about the united church praying together. The importance of what we do. When Chris gets up here and says, let us pray together, you can, you can do one or two things. You can, you can enter in with Chris in, in listening and praying with him, or your mind can wander. Wonder what's for lunch today. Wonder how long Larry's going to go. Wonder if in your mind this is distracted. Listen, brothers and sisters, this church began in prayer. This church has been sustained in prayer. When we have gathered together to pray as a church, we've had special nights where we've gathered together to pray as a church. We have seen God move on our behalf. We have seen difficulties, mountains removed. We have seen problems taken care of. We have seen God meet the needs that we have again and again. We must never leave being a praying church If we stop praying as a church, our church will wither and die. Ephesus, Sardis, the church at Hippo, great churches in their day, no longer exist. They had leaves, but eventually stopped bearing fruit. So let us heed Christ's warning in these verses by never losing sight of our need to pray and always keeping in sight Jesus' promise of power and answered prayer when we believe in him without doubting. We must be a praying church. If, if we're not a praying church, let me, let me give you one last thought. If we're not a praying church, we could very well become the kind of people that Paul in 2 Timothy describes. He says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, children, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the point, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Let us never lose sight of being a praying church. These two pericopes, they do warn us, but they do so much more, excuse me, than warn us. They are here to encourage us that Jesus loves his church. Listen, these warnings exist because God cares so much and wants to protect us from a life that could go bankrupt. That's why these warnings exist, not to slap you and say, get it right, but to remind you how much he loves you and cares for you. Just as a parent will warn a child out of love to protect that child, Jesus does that for us here. And that's the glory of the gospel. His compassion toward us is so evident in these passages. Don't go this way, he pleads. Don't take the wide road to destruction. Come to me, I'll I'll give you rest. I'll answer your prayer. Oh, consider the love of God in these two stories and consider how we should respond. And let me give you just two lessons from this passage. The first is pray. Please pray. Please pray together when you're in your care groups. Please unite when we gather here on Sunday to pray. Please, when we have church prayer meetings, which had to end when COVID started two and a half years ago, but which I am committed to reinstating, where we gather together as a church to pray, God moves in those situations. Please, please be committed to to attend those. And then secondly, just guard your heart. Guard your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us how deeply you love us by providing these passages to warn us and to remind us of our need to depend on you and to have faith in you and to bear fruit for you and how you have promised to do that for us through the working of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you bless every member of this church today. May your grace be upon those who are here, who, who are attenders as well. May they, may they know your presence and your love. And may they experience your nearness in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.